0: Previously on Funny Science Fiction. Well, sometimes it's it's the missing the mark on funny that can be funny. So either way, we're going to laugh.
1: <laughs> 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 Hi, I'm Michael Cerberus, and you're listening to the Funny Science Fiction Podcast.
0: The podcast where we talk about extremely important world events, just none of this world and not anything real. Our guest today is a veteran actor of stage and screen. In 1993, he was nominated for his first Tony for the show Tommy. Now, he won a Tony, his first Tony Award in 2004 in the Broadway show Assassins, playing the role of the infamous John Wilkes Booth. Now, with a bio that's this diverse, we are excited to welcome the one, the only, Michael Cerverus to Funny Science Fiction. Hello, Michael. Hey, y'all. Glad Thank to have you, you on the show us. today. Thank you for joining I'm delighted to be here.
2: He says that now. He says that. (laughs) Give him time. I'm delighted to
0: be here now.
2: (laughs) We will check back in 45 (laughs) minutes to see if you still
0: are. All right. So, Michael, you have been a part of some pretty cool sci-fi universes. You were the Observer in Fringe, along with a couple other titles in that show. Of course, Ramsey's the Fourth and Tick on Amazon. You were Professor Pig in Gotham. And even a part of the MCU as Elias Star in Ant Man and the Wasp. So, with setting the tone there for that, the reason why I mentioned those shows is because typically we like to find out what were people's sci-fi influences growing up that led them to a life of sci-fi in the future. So, uh, go take it. What were your what were your favorites? There's a I horrible go lead that? into that question, but I, <laughs> we're going to go with it anyway. <laughs>
1: Um, well, I absolutely grew up uh, you know, a sci-fi and fantasy and horror film uh, devotee from, from early, early days. Um, I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, and I remember um, two things especially. I remember staying up on Friday nights for Chiller Theater once I was allowed to somewhat determine my own bedtime. And of course, the best movies on Chiller Theater uh, of course, they started, I guess, at probably 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. And the best ones were usually the second or third ones. So I remember staying up and I was exhausted and I was just a little kid, but I was determined to see, you know, the the universal uh, mummy and creature from the Black Lagoon and, mm-hmm. and you know, all of those black and white uh, films so I remember going into the to the bathroom like at commercial breaks to splash water on my face so I would (laughs) stay up long enough to see like the really good ones um and then I also remember uh, having a subscription to Famous Monsters of of Filmland magazine um and just being you know devouring those those stories of all of the behind the scenes stuff of all my favorite horror films and sci-fi films so um I don't think that I ever imagined when I was a kid that <clears throat> I would actually get to be participating in any of these worlds, but, but I was always in love with it. And I was a total comic book kid. I was mostly a Marvel kid for the most part. I, you know, I was awesome. a big Spider-Man fan and, um, and fantastic four and X-Men were you know big favorites of mine as a kid. Um, but, uh, so I was, yeah, I was absolutely immersed in all of, all of that. I didn't ever imagine uh, a career path that would put me in some of those worlds, but uh, I've been thrilled every time it has.
0: Yeah, you've had some, you've had some really cool roles. Um, it, and we say this a lot you know, when we're talking to our guests, uh, especially uh, in the sci-fi world, because there's uh, there's opportunity for makeups and prosthesis and all these different things where you don't necessarily know it's that person. Like, for instance, I didn't realize that you were Professor Pig in Gotham. Like, so when I'm <laughs> going through your list, I'm going down, I'm scrolling through, I'm like, oh, he was <laughs> Professor Pig? That <laughs> was kind of messed I up, but that's cool. All right. I <laughs> think
1: the most, the most unrecognizable uh, one is a movie I did called, Cirque du Freak, Vampire's Assistant, where I played Mr. Tiny. And, you know, that was the most prosthetic stuff that I had. And the really cool thing about that was that the um, FX makeup guys, um, one of them had been sort of trained by, uh, you know, direct line from, you know, Roy Harryhausen's uh oh, wow. you know, shop and stuff and Ooh. and and the and the people who did the life cast to make the the stuff um when I went to their office to get the the sort of head and shoulders life cast done um there was the uh um uh predator exoskeleton thing was there and like they had done just all of these amazing sci-fi things that I had seen. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna be like in the same place where all of this stuff came from. So I'm a total geek and dork and fan in the midst of,
0: you know, all of it. that's really cool.
2: Yeah. But that's like, that's why you're here. That's why we get to talk to you is because we are also the total geeks and dorks. We just Fantastic. don't get to be in the middle of it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so the three of us have our, our set roles here. Tim is our mainstream Star Wars MCU Funko guy. Nick has a tendency to m- know more about the obscure sci-fi and the novels. And I'm the one who's into musicals because I'm a weirdo. <laughs> but we'll get more into your musical history later, okay. which is fantastic. I mean, you're a Tony Award winner, but sorry, I'm okay. <laughs> so what's the difference for you, between preparing for a role on stage whether you're singing or performing Shakespeare and preparing for a role for television or film
1: well i think you know there there are obviously technical differences if you're if you're going into a, a musical there's music to learn there are you know songs to figure out and that's a whole skill set in itself mm-hmm. um, and if you're doing um, you know, if you're doing a play, I think the the main difference from working on a something on camera is that you sort of get this extended period to work and develop and explore, and you get uh, you know time in rehearsal every day to try try to go at it this way and see where that takes you, and then the next day you can sort of try it a different way, and um, and that's that's a really valuable, cool creative process to go through to be honest i enjoy the rehearsal process as much as i do the performance process like i in fact when i'm happiest in a performance of a long run of a show it's when it still feels like we're still rehearsing and discovering things and working on things we're just doing it now in front of a paid audience you know Mm -hmm. um and when you work in front of the camera you really you you seldom get much time for rehearsal. I mean, I have done things where there was time for rehearsal before you get to the set. um, But that's the exception more than the rule these days. Um, And even when you get to do that, it's like a day or something. Um, So a lot of the work that you're doing, you're really doing on the fly and on your feet. Uh, But that's also cool because it makes you make bold first, choices because you know you may not get to try too many different things so um so i try to kind of take things from both worlds and apply them where i can but i think the fundamental sort of uh approach that i have to to exploring a character is kind of the same no matter what the medium is and that's starting from the script and starting from what the writer has put on the page and seeing just how much I can dig out of that, including things like, what do other characters say about my character, not just what does my character say, um, or what does my character not say, or what do other characters not say about my character, or you know what is it about the way that my character talks that uh, tells me something about the way he thinks. Um, and I think that's kind of true no matter what medium the character is is in,
2: right? Do you find yourself preferring one or the other? If if you're given the option of, hey, we have a movie we want you to do, or hey, we have a Broadway show we want you to do, do you have a do you have one you usually lean toward?
1: Um, well, for the for the longest time, I did so much stage. Um, I was really fortunate to get to do you know, sort of back to back or one after another. Uh, long runs of real exciting, challenging, interesting shows on stage. And I love that. And I was really grateful for it. It also is exhausting. And it takes up every moment of your life for long stretches of time, if you're lucky. Um, and and it, I, it wasn't like I, I determined to change that at all. It's just... Uh, um television and and film opportunities started to come up and they were really cool and things that i hadn't done before and i think the main thing about that i can say with some consistency about my career is whatever i have just done i'm interested in doing something different next so you know i when i kind of crest one hill, I'm looking for the next hill or mountain to kind of climb. So if I've just finished doing a play, I'm gonna be more interested in doing something on screen. Um, Or if I've just done a musical, I'm gonna be more interested in doing, you know, a a straight play or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I think at heart, I'm kind of a creature of the stage, but um, but it's been like five, years or so since fun home closed, and that was the last uh performance i did on stage and i'm sure i hope that i'll be you know i'll go back at some point but i'm really enjoying this this uh you know extended stay in front of uh, a variety of cameras
0: it's really cool. I, I wanted I wanted to highlight one thing that you mentioned, and I, I don't know that if this is something that other actors do or don't, but this I think it's the first time that anybody's ever mentioned it to us. Was the looking at their character from the context of others, mm. um, and I and, and I I find that really striking because it, it makes and it makes complete sense to me is that that you get a fuller picture of who and what you're supposed to be moving forward with that character. You know because I, I don't think that anybody because we've asked this question, uh, in, in a variety of different ways, uh, over the, the course of our episodes, but I don't think anybody else has ever mentioned that. And well, that's just...
1: interesting. I mean, some people may do it kind of instinctively and not even think about the fact that they're doing it to mention it. Um, but I do think it's interesting because as an actor, your job really is to fight your character's point of view mm-hmm. and and. If you have a good director and you know good writer and good people to work with then you can focus just on doing that and arguing for your character's point of view and the story will be you know will be handled and crafted by by the people whose job it is to do that it's it gets tricky when you find yourself in a situation where you feel like i need to also be kind of monitoring the directing side of things or the writing side of things because that's not really being considered completely and I haven't had that experience very often because I've got I've been really lucky to work with just top flight people who you can just go you you have this under control so I'm just going to do my job which is think of the world the way my character sees it but when I'm starting to work I think you are kind of uh, doing two things at once you're looking for that point of view, your character's point of view, but you also are trying to understand. I think what's what's really valuable about looking at your character from other characters and even the audience's point of view is it helps you understand your role in the totality of the thing. And it helps you understand where you fit, what, what piece of the puzzle you need to to provide when you when you understand the whole thing from the outside of just your own personal uh, viewpoint. Yeah, it makes sense to me.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I want to say congrats on getting those two Tony Awards. That's definitely an accomplishment.
2: It's amazing. Thank you.
3: I and appreciate that. Thanks. And as an accomplished Broadway performer, what does that mean to you?
1: Well. Um, i think to be just to be recognized by you know your peers and people that you admire not i'm not not under any illusion that uh you know that i'm better than the other people that i was nominated right. with and you know i'm i'm very clear about all the factors that go into why one person's name gets called on a given evening and um and i think it's uh you know understandable but a bad idea to believe that that you know elevates you in in some way you know among your peers um what's really great about awards is that sense of being recognized for the work and the heart and soul that you put into something Mm -hmm. and that's something that i think is true for anybody like anyone who who is told by people that they admire or look up to or measure themselves against. Uh, anytime you're told, yeah, we saw what you did and we really find it worth you know, acknowledging, that, that's really meaningful, I think. Yeah. And, um, and it's the kind of thing that can help you, especially when you're in the early parts of your career or developing as an actor, there's so much self-doubt that's a part of you know the creative life and and so many opportunities to feel uh, um, self-conscious or or um, not certain that <laughs> how you even got here and how much longer till they realize and like show <laughs> <you>. <laughs> um, so anytime that something like that happens where you feel like oh okay maybe you know maybe i do belong here a little bit and maybe i i have earned a a right to stand here you know that that can be a big weight off your shoulders and it's not a one-way street you know it's not like you just climb the ladder and it gets better and better like if you've spent any time in, in the creative world you know it's like a few steps up and then a Five steps backwards, and then a few forwards again, and then some sideways that you didn't even anticipate. So, um, so I've tried to really sort of have a good perspective on on what that all means, but also to allow myself to enjoy what's really cool about you know hearing your name called in a room full of people
0: that you look up to. Right. Excellent. Yeah. Validation makes sense to me. Cool.
1: Totally. And that can happen in any walk of life, you know, which, and I, I, you know, I wish we spent more time looking around and saying to people around us, Hey, I just want you to know, like, I saw how hard you worked on that thing. And it's really great. And you should be proud of it. You know, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's something that I've tried to do in my parenting. I have a three-year-old and that is a, that is a big thing with the, Hey, you did a really good job with that because you do want to instill that, that self-confidence in her. You want her to know, Hey, I did a cool thing. I did a good thing. I can do that again. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we don't get that enough as humans, especially as adults. We don't get it. We get it when we're kids. And then you graduate from high school and they're like, okay, bye.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you really, it's really important to develop that, skill for yourself and to be able to take some time and say hey i just need to take a minute and recognize how hard i worked on that and maybe i didn't get everything that i thought i was going to from it but i'm really proud of myself for working so hard you know
2: right it's fun when it comes around from the three-year-old too she saw one of she saw one of our podcast interviews and she's like mom that was a really good one I'm like <laughs> <I'm> like thanks <laughs>
0: From a three-year-old,
2: that's that's high we'll praise. We'll
0: take it. Hey, that's, that's my age group. I'm I'm rocking it. So let's right? go for it. You're totally demographic. The, exactly. Three-year-olds exactly. are
2: the best.
0: So, uh, speaking of, hey, you did a thing and it was really good. Uh, you have released three albums uh, up to this point, uh, three rock albums. Uh, now, the most recent being uh, 2020, Hinterlands. And uh, I was listening to some of that, and I have to be honest with you. The song "Power Lines," the very first track on the album, reminded me so much of a band called Toad the Wet Sprocket. Really? And I listened to, I listened to that song about three times in a row because I, I, the first time I was like, boy, that sounds like Toad. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Toad the Wet Sprocket. Um, and I don't know if they're part of your musical background or not, but I could see them s- like performing that song. I could see them doing that. It totally and easily fits their vibe um so uh, just kudos to you that was a really it's a really cool album uh it's been added to my apple my apple playlist oh, awesome. um uh but yeah i really really enjoyed that so uh guys That's if you're listening song. uh please go check out hinterlands uh by michael service you will not be disappointed and it. it's a really cool album he has two others as well um i made it through one of them i was starting it on the second one today or the third yeah the second one of the, of the three today but i haven't had really an opportunity to listen to that one but they're so all, far
1: they're all kind of different I mean there, there are things that sort of tie them together but um, um, Hinterlands actually was the first of the three um, but it was the last to be released and um, oh interesting okay yeah and it's interesting I, I know of Toad the Wet Sprocket and I know some of their stuff but I don't know them super well um, when I was doing it I was living in uh, London at the time. And I recorded this in Scotland with some friends of mine who have a band called Teenage Fan Club. And, um, and I kept thinking, this is my attempt to be uh, Oasis that because that was what was happening in London. Gotcha. At the time. Okay. And that, that song was like, I, I think, if I'm honest with myself, this is me, you know, trying to pretend that I'm in Oasis. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that's really cool that you uh that you heard those and and like them i i'm you know i really love recording and i love writing music and recording music i i haven't done a solo record in a while i've mostly been working with my band loose cattle for the last several years that's been my major uh okay uh musical uh direction lately
0: so Let's keep talking about music here for a second. So, we talked about your sci fi influences. What are some of your musical influences when you were younger that that really like peaked your ears up and made you like, you know, pay attention a little bit more?
1: Well, they're kind of all over the place, to be honest. Love it. First of all, yeah. First of all, I grew up with uh, a father who is a classical pianist and music <laughs> professor in university. So, I, you know, I went to bed as an infant. Hearing my father practicing Chopin and Beethoven and Bach and um, and and I, you know, I was growing up in a pre MTV, pre internet world with no older siblings in West Virginia, so I discovered music for the most part from radio. But seventies FM radio was a pretty varied thing, even in West Virginia, so. I, like my first 45 that I bought was the Jimmy Castor Bunch, um, the Bertha Butt Boogie. So yeah. the a, a little West Virginia white kid was like grooving nice. to some deep funk stuff uh, early on. Nice. But at the same time, I was, you know, I remember, uh, well, I used to be really embarrassed that this was my first concert experience, but I've now become really proud of the fact that the first live concert I ever went to with my my friend scott and his parents was the carpenters
2: oh i Venus love show. the carpenters
1: yeah they're amazing and they i are. you know i saw karen carpenter play drums and you know it was oh. it was amazing um but then you know i was a huge deep purple fan and ario speedwagon and um and i was always trying to find stuff that i could sort of show to my dad and say well, look, these guys are legitimate, serious musicians mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he you know, didn't really have a lot of regard for rock music. Well, sure. Um sure. So, anytime there was like, I'm Kansas. I was a big fan of Kansas because they had a, a violin player. So oh, I yeah. could, you know, say to my dad, "Look, they have a classical instrument in the band." Or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer did uh, pictures in the, at an exhibition, yeah. mm-hmm. and I brought that into him, and and he said, "Yeah, why don't they just?" the Mussorgsky you know why are they, <laughs> why are they putting <laughs> in this? Oh. Um, so so yeah so very much like a prog rock kid um, awesome I came to it was interesting because I came to things like the who a little later than they were actually happening because mm. stuff took a little longer to trickle down to West Virginia um, but it meant that a lot of music that became very formative for me and very important in my life like the who for example or you know punk music and i was a big went through a big Britpop uh, pop phase mm-hmm. and sure. um and i you know i found it wasn't just the soundtrack of my growing up it was like music i heard and then really dug into instead of it just kind of going on in the background while i was making all my you know teenage mistakes and stuff so Um, so I think I listened a little more than I might have if I'd actually had the wealth of music that you have today, you know, that kids just have to kind of hit a button and they can hear anything they want to. So, so there was that on the one hand and then like folk and, and country music that was happening in West Virginia. So all of the place.
2: I love the, the varied... Um, interests with music my Mm. grandmother was a classically trained opera singer my Um, mom got me into piano lessons and voice lessons when I was little but my mom still has her carpenters vinyls from when she was when they were brand new like she's still got them in their beautiful packaging there she loves carpenters but then like I've got two older brothers and an older sister so my older brothers introduced me to Bowling for Soup and all of these like <laughs> punk bands right. and Avenged Sevenfold and Three Days Grace. And it's like, I went from Jimmy Buffett and Carpenters and Simon and Garfunkel to Three Days Grace. <laughs> and then four years ago, my husband and I actually went and saw Kansas in person in Saginaw. It was an amazing concert. It was absolutely yeah. spectacular. But yeah. I love that you can get all of those different varieties of music to help grow who you are as a person
1: yeah absolutely and if I you look at you know the the path of my career it it's as meandering as my musical tastes are so. yeah,
2: but that's always fun because then when you you hit shuffle on your music library and you go from brit pop to broadway musicals to rap or whatever shows up yeah. next no
0: it, i love i love eclectic music taste. my my iTunes catalog used to go for, and still does, I mean, I shouldn't say used to, uh, I could, you could be listening to Perry Como one moment and then be listening <laughs> to Megadeth the next. So, you know, it, it's going to bounce between the two. So yeah. Good music is good music. Absolutely.
2: It is. it is. So kind of bouncing off of Tim's question, according to the internet and my research, you played lyric guitar, which I'm not exactly sure what that is, but we'll get to that, <laughs> when you had the title role of Sweeney Todd during the 2005 production. So first of all, what is a lyric guitar?
1: <laughs> I I don't know. That sounds like one of those like, you know, critic writer terms Man. that doesn't seem to mean a lot. That's I mean, right. we, we played the like lyric just, guitar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose I suppose maybe the point they were trying to make was that the guitar work was kind of more melodic and and gentle as opposed to the bloodthirsty acting work that I was doing Um, because I think that is kind of true that you know I wasn't I wasn't like hammering away at power chords when I was playing Sweeney Todd you
2: know. Okay that makes sense. So how did you what kind of preparation did you have to get into the character Sweeney Todd because he's I mean obviously he's crazy but he's also oddly sympathetic.
1: (laughs) Well um, I had the chief preparation was the fact that on my first ever trip to New York with my family, my dad, who was a huge Sondheim fan at that time, um, already took the family to see our first Broadway show. And it was one of the late previews of the original Sweeney Todd on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So that was like my introduction to Broadway, to you know the Broadway on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just blown away and we all the whole family was and we had the cassette in the station wagon and would listen <laughs> to it on every family trip. Oh, and course. we could we could sing every single note of it. And um and I I subsequently went back to see it because then I went to school up in uh I guess my last year of high school I was um at Phillips Exeter Academy in, in New Hampshire. And I guess it would have been there. Um, from there, and I guess also, even college. I guess uh, freshman year, maybe um, that I I came back.
0: Man,
1: it would have been, yeah, maybe the end of high school and beginning of college. Anyway, I saw I saw the show on Broadway seven times with Glenn Carew and with Glenn. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 oh gosh, um, George Hearn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew it inside out and had for years. And then when the opportunity to do it came up, I was kind of surprised because I I would have expected I wouldn't get a chance to even think about playing Sweeney Todd, if ever, until later in my career. Um, but our production was was... Thankfully, very it was very true to the spirit of of what Sondheim wrote,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: but it was it was a very different concept than what Hal Prince had had so memorably made, and we all had seen that and all you know revered it, but there was no way I was going to be able to compete with my memory of George Hearn or Len Carayu. So luckily, it was a very different thing, and I could kind of develop my own idea of Sweeney. And and it's interesting what you say uh, about him being, you know, almost sympathetic, because I think that goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier, where, you know, I think of my job as fighting my character's point of view. And when you think, okay well, here's a guy who was just going about his business and then, you know, the legal system grabs him, throws, you know, makes up a charge to ship him off to Australia. Um, because the judge has ulterior motives. And he comes back, I think, really just intending to get his wife and daughter back and then disappear maybe somewhere up north. And if it weren't for the meddling of Mrs. Lovett, maybe that's what would have happened. But that's clearly not what happens. Or we have no musical. (laughs) uh, You have um, no meat
2: pies if you don't have Mrs. Lovett. You have
1: no meat pies. Um, And I think, you know, so... Like I was saying, I, I, if you're playing, no matter how villainous the behavior of the character you're playing is, everybody thinks of themselves as the hero of their own story. Nobody, very seldom, do does a person think of themselves as the bad guy. So you know, in Sweeney's mind, the things he did, he felt he had to do or was justified to do, and you know, I, I leave it to the writers and the director to kind of make sure the audience knows that this is not the, the path to choose for one's life. Right. Um, and I can then just sort of make the argument that I think is always more interesting. And this is something I think I probably got from watching, you know, those Boris Karloff in Frankenstein, where I always sympathized with the monsters. You know, right. I always felt like, Frankenstein didn't ask to be put together and, you know, shoved into this world. And, you know, God, uh, Godzilla didn't ask to be woken up by a nuclear bomb. And <laughs> King Kong was perfectly happy on his island and would have right. been totally cool if it weren't for meddling people. Um, so I always feel like it's an easy thing. If a character is just evil, we can dismiss him and not have to ask ourselves, you know, what part of me is like that and what do I what does this character you know what's the author trying to make me look at in my life or in society or you know whatever um I think it's so much more interesting when you can get the audience to go well okay I mean I think it's probably not good that you know people go around shooting presidents but I do see how the society around us maybe contributes to some of what happens. It's not Mm -hmm. just that people are crazy, you know, and Mm -hmm. that gives us something to take away and think about, you know,
2: because John Wilkes Booth would be a really hard character to play because he is so historically hated. There is so much, so much hatred toward him and in popular culture, even he's, he's still talked down about, but trying to play him as, as a character would be difficult to try to get into that.
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I did I love to do research. So when I'm playing a real life character, it's really cool because, you know, there often is detailed historical stuff that you can dig mm-hmm. up. And I found a book of his letters that included, um, for one thing, it just sort of helped me contextualize, you know, he was an actor like me and and acting was very different in some ways but in other ways it's always been kind of the same and so part of these letters were about arrangements for going to do hamlet in in chicago or whatever um so that kind of humanized him as a person and then um it this also included this manifesto that he had written in anticipation of what was originally supposed to be just a kidnapping of lincoln and, and that went tragically the wrong way Mm -hmm. um but uh but and i also discovered something i hadn't known which was that at the time lincoln was as unpopular as some of our you know presidents in recent memory have Mm -hmm. been and where the country clearly was very divided and he and booth believed that he was going to be hailed as a hero for the actions that he did. And, and he, he had reason to think that would be true. Like there were plenty of people who sort of felt that until it actually happened. And then suddenly, you know, it was a different kind of thing. So um, if you, if you take, if you take away the, you know, the horrible criminal tragic, act that we know he's responsible for later Mm -hmm. and look at him up until that point you know as somebody who's saying the country's not what it was and you know the the people in charge are tyrants and you know it's not these days especially it's not hard to find uh real life examples of of that point of view on on whichever side you find yourself Mm on so um so yeah it is difficult when you look at him just as this monolithic bad guy but when you really start looking at the details and really start looking at the facts you realize wow it's much more complicated than that and yeah, and, yeah. you know he actually was a human being and uh
2: when you You get more than they teach you in history class in high school
1: absolutely (laughs) and that's that's what's great about the arts because it you know it fills in gaps or gives context and humanizes a lot of history and as we know you know those who don't remember history are doomed to To repeat it yes right so so we all have
3: like you've worked really hard at your characters and i'm pretty sure they're all near and dear to your heart and is there like a, a role or a hidden gem of yours that you are especially proud of that we should go watch?
1: That's so hard because like you say, like I've been very uh, fond and, and uh, um, protective of lots of the characters that I've played. Um, I would say some of the ones that really stand out uh, Hedwig when I played Hedwig was, um, off Broadway and in LA and London, you know that's a that's a kind of all-consuming character and and especially at the time was really a groundbreaking kind of show and and meant a lot to a lot of people and that I'm really proud to have been part of that legacy. Um, in the same way, Fun Home, uh, playing Bruce Bechtel. Who, who you know, also conveniently ties me back into the graphic novel comic world through Alison Bechtel's original book. Um, that was kind of, um, every aspect of that was like the ideal job for me because it was uh, a piece of literature that, that I just have enormous respect for. Um, it was a creative team that I, Really, really admire. It was a, a cast that I love and still feel very connected to. And on top of all of the great things that happened career-wise from it, and you know the Tony Award and everything else, um, really more what it meant to the audiences who came to see it, <clears throat> who saw themselves on stage for the first time, or you know understood things about themselves or their families, whether whether their stories were at all like the Bechdel's are not. It It's just every family has some kind of uh, complicated relationship that can find echoes, I think in that piece. So mm-hmm. um, that's something I'm super, super proud to have been a part of. And then things like a few years ago, somebody sent me some sci-fi, magazine i can't remember which one that did a list of like you know the i think maybe it was his 60th anniversary or something so it was like the 60 or 50 top um most iconic characters in in sci-fi and september was well up there on the list and that to me was one of the coolest things to to sort of recognize that i got to play a part of creating this kind of indelible character that Mm -hmm. people really you know embraced and cared about and and that stands up over time and i'm i'm really proud of that that whole show and i think it's one of those things that will continue to be discovered by generations of of people
0: excellent that's awesome
2: all
0: right so we recently uh as in last month or so had an opportunity to talk with your fellow castmate and pyramid gang member, Joshua Schubart here on the show. Uh We had a great time with Josh, uh, just heck of a guy. Uh yeah. But we talked with him about his very first scene on the tick where he runs in breathless and you give him a nice <laughs> pop on the back. Now for Josh, this was a huge deal because he grew up a fan of the tick. So I want to know, what was your favorite part about getting to smack Josh?
1: Well, you know there are so many. I mean, there's the, <laughs> there's the sound it made. There's the you know the, the firmness of his. He's got a very firm back, Josh, and uh, you can you can really lean in to whack him on the
0: back. <laughs> there you go. All right, so serious question. I had to ask that because. We talked about that a little bit with Josh as well. Uh, But how hard is it to play a bad guy who takes himself seriously but can't be taken seriously?
1: It's so fun because I play so many like dark characters where I'm basically, you know, disemboweling myself for the pleasure of the audience on a given, (laughs) given day. So to actually get to be funny. Um, And the more the great thing, of course, is the more seriously you take it, the funnier it is when you have Mm -hmm. great writing like we had on that show. Um, So I just had such a blast every every second I was part of that show, Um, you know, partly just trying to keep it straight face with, you know, <laughs> Peter and Griffin in those suits was, you know, or anybody who had to talk to me wearing a gold velour tracksuit,
0: you know. I mean it's like we right. all had our
1: crosses to bear in that show. <laughs> um, well
0: that's that's always been one of the the great things about the tick is that it never takes anything too seriously. And um, yet
1: and yet it's very sincere at the same time, yeah. which I think is what is so sweet and wonderful about it. You know, it's really it it says really sweet things about friendship and and sure. you know, family relationships and all kinds of stuff, um, and yet it's completely irre- irreverent all the time, including about itself. Absolutely.
2: So, between John Wilkes Booth, Professor Pig, Sweeney Todd, and Ramses the Fourth, you have quite the villainous streak going on. So. Yeah, about I, don't know what, I don't know what
1: people are trying to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I Can like to saw? think that maybe I just, you know, hopefully I'm a, I'm a nicer, better, more evolved person because I'm working through all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shoot presidents and, and, you know, bake people into pies and, you know, chop them up.
2: <laughs> are there any heroic roles that you would be interested in if you had your choice or are you enjoying being the bad guy?
1: Well, I mean, I do enjoy being a bad guy because those characters so often are the most interesting, complex, uh, characters. Um, but yeah, I would, I would like to, you know, get the girl instead of, you know, (laughs) chopping her up and I would like to live happily ever after instead of, never quite making it to the end credits of any, anything <laughs> I'm in. Um, but uh, it it doesn't seem to be my my lot in life. And I don't, like I say, I don't know what that says about me or people's opinion of me or what. But,
2: uh, <laughs> we try actually, not to take it too personally. We actually recently talked with Armin Shimmerman, who was Quark on Deep Space Nine. And yeah. he mentioned that he's he's had a lot of villain roles too. And Tim had this theory that it's it's the Shakespearean actor, it's the Shakespeare in you that has made it so that you become this this villain because you're used to the the long drawn out Shakespearean soliloquies that we know and love, and villains are notorious for that.
1: Yeah, and you know you just think someday some villain is going to figure out if you just cut that thing in half, you would. <laughs> Kill the hero before. <laughs>
2: Stop him. talking and get to the murder. you know, <laughs> I have, I have you
1: think know Armin this. and I, um, uh, yeah, I think you I think you're absolutely right about the Shakespearean thing. I think, um, I think there is a, maybe maybe some distrust of of hyper-educated seeming people that you know we figure if you can handle classical verse, you must be evil,
2: right.
0: Hmm. possibility
2: if you can say all of that without <laughs> breaking character
0: right i often think that you mentioned just getting to the point of killing him i often think about uh austin powers where you know him <laughs> and scott are standing there and scott just wants to pull out the gun it's like I, I got a gun in my room we can i'll go get it we can cap them together you know and, and instead he has to sit there and go through this long drawn out you know story to austin about how you know dr evil but how he's gonna kill him. I just yeah, that One just popped in my head. Dollars. Right? Exactly.
2: <laughs> it is funny the number of times that it's like if you just <laughs> shut up.
0: Just just, just shut. Up. Just just do it already. <laughs> yeah. Why oh, don't wanna be here for why, why do you need to
1: explain to him everything that he already knows? Just, he, was
3: just just, <laughs> he was just
2: there. He was just there.
3: So our Facebook group has over hundred and sixty-five thousand members and wow. we and it has, it's just filled with memes of this mixed with this. And um, so which two of your characters would you like to see come together to either rule the world together or to become Nemesis?
1: Um, well, I think uh, Mr. Tiny and Professor Pig would be an amazing dynamic duo. Obviously, between Professor Pig's uh, skill in the kitchen and uh, <laughs> an and ability to kind of pretend to be a French chef among you know his many different guises, and the fact that clearly Mister Tiny loves to eat, mm-hmm. I think you know on that level alone they're really kind of simpatico,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and they're both they both have such a flair for the dramatic and the theatrical. I think that would be a pretty amazing i can't imagine it ending well but it would be pretty amazing to watch yeah. interesting
0: i was thinking uh professor pig and sweeney todd i but... mean kind of similar 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 yeah reasons. but they're yeah. but they're kind of cut on the same cloth so i like i like the idea of yours where there there's uh you know almost a uh
2: symbiotic relationship
0: thank you that's the word i was looking for i got I, I you back going, tim i kept having the thought of parasitic but i'm like no that's just that's <laughs> just one side benefiting so thank you i think I some of my characters
1: probably would have a parasitic relationship with each
0: other so. <laughs> <laughs> all right michael we're at a point on our show where we like to run our guests through a little bit of a quiz so today uh for your listening and participating pleasure we have a quiz called Broadway meets sci-fi. Awesome. Alright, so it's five questions. Each question is multiple choice. Okay? So okay. you want so we'll help you out a little bit there. <laughs> uh, if you get three of the questions correct, we would like to send you one of these awesome I gave to the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans coffee mugs. Awesome. Uh, if you get four questions correct, we'd like to send you that coffee mug along with this book written by the founder of our Facebook group called Dances with Aliens. It's all mm-hmm. about a dog at a, a theme park, but at, not a real dog it's a man in a in a uh, dog suit hiding from aliens uh and how oh, wow. they can't recognize a guy in a dog suit this sounds tailor-made for me so <laughs> I, really, I really need to get five right <laughs> so i uh, only need four to get that so oh, oh awesome so yeah so if you get four uh uh we'll we'll send you that if you get five we'll send you his other book that started the group called custodians of the cosmos Uh, Which is all about uh, something similar to Star Trek, but not quite Star Trek, uh, where a young man wanted to join something quite like Star Trek Federation, uh, but washed out and instead became a custodian so he could boldly clean up after those who boldly just went.
2: It's totally Star Trek, but not Star Trek because copyrights. Exactly.
0: (laughs) We don't have enough money for them to sue us. Uh, So anyway.
2: That's because we have no money.
0: That's that's the next point. Yeah. So. (laughs) Uh, however if you get less than three correct we'd like to take your picture make a meme out of you and put it into our group we call it our fun sequence are you okay with that
1: i'm totally okay with that
0: all right
3: fantastic (laughs) take it away nick this actor may be best known for his time as doogie hauser and benny or barney stinson and also count olaf and dr horrible is it jeffrey dean morgan neil patrick harris or
1: bob saget neil patrick harris or correct my co-star in assassins.
2: Yes. There you go. All right, number 2. This actor sang about his summer loving, his grease lightning, and eventually became a saint. Howard's saint in the Punisher. Was that A, John Goodman, B, John Cleese, or C, John Travolta? Uh,
1: John Travolta, I guess, right? It is John yeah. Travolta. Yeah. Yeah, so 2 for 2. Cool.
3: This actor showed us that on a tiger, that on a tiger can wear a necktie on any given Sunday and that big boy Caprice could win the triple crown of acting. Is it Al Roker, Al Pacino,
0: or Al B. Sure. Uh, oh, uh, Pacino. Yes. Yeah. I may have screwed up the writing of that question. It's entirely possible. <laughs> It happens. There's there's one too many ons in that sentence. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to say this actor showed us that a tiger can't because that oh, okay. was that was Pacino's break onto Broadway was does a, a okay. tiger wear a necktie? Okay. Right. So oh. so anyway, I just yeah.
2: So there's that Tipe-os. It <laughs> happened. <laughs> All right. Question number four. This actress showed us that a cat that a cat on a hot tin roof can become a spider, a black widow, in fact. Is that a Haley Atwell, Haley Atwell. Wow, look, it's contagious, Tim. B. Brie Larson, or C. Scarlett Johansson.
1: Scarlett Johansson. Correct.
0: Very good. Almost All right, you are left. you are four for four, so that gets you the mug and the book. Awesome.
3: And this actor debuted on Broadway in 1957 and won a Tony for his role, The Great White Hope, and eventually became the best father to his twin on screen children luke and leah was it james earl jones john wayne or kirk douglas james Earl jones yes,
0: yes. very good five for five my good okay, man get
2: two books very cool awesome and a mug and a mug yeah, and yes. a mug
0: so yeah so we'll get uh, after no reason. <laughs> so after we're, we're done here today we'll uh, we'll get your shipping information so we can send those off to you okay
3: great and Michael, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and what you're doing now?
1: Um, well, I have uh, an Instagram uh, page. That's, um, you know, I really should remember what these <laughs> what these cancels <samples> are. <laughs> um, I think Instagram is at Michael Cerveris, I believe. Um, the The icon is a is a little cow jumping in the air. So if you find that, you find me um and i also have a facebook page i have a couple of facebook pages one is just me and one is michael server's actor musician i think but um uh and and i'm i'm a little more active on instagram than i am on facebook and i don't do a lot of twitter anymore um but also my band loose cattle has an instagram account and uh and uh Facebook account as well. And and pretty active on those things and keep people apprised of my music stuff there. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know, there's a website for Loose Cattle, loosecattleband.com is our website there. So
2: Awesome. We are going to make sure that we link all of those in our show description so that our viewers and our listeners can check them out.
1: And uh, the next place that you're going to be able to see me any places on a new series for hbo called the gilded age Mm -hmm. um which is julian fellow's new series for hbo that starts um in january end of january um and it's kind of a um downton abbey in in 1880s america um with a cavalcade of of stars and people that you'll recognize and stuff and it's it should be a really cool series so that's the that's the next place I'll be appearing on screen.
2: You said Downton Abbey and um, 1880s America, and I'm in. Yeah, got it. Yeah. My wife, my I wife mean, will
0: absolutely eat it up. What <laughs> was like
2: called again?
1: Uh, the Gilded Age.
2: All right. I am all for historical dramas, so yes. Now, well,
1: you are gonna. Have I got the show for you?
2: I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, guys. So if you haven't hit that subscribe button already, we're going to encourage you to do it right now. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It's the most important thing you can do to help our show out. And it helps us to get more amazing guests like Michael Cerveris here today to have these funny moments and these conversations for you to be able to listen to. So please subscribe. It's going to help far more than we can ever tell you. And be sure to check out Michael's work as well. He's got an amazing uh, list of shows, whether you're into Broadway, whether you're into sci-fi, whether you're into straight up Regular acting and all these other great things. Uh, He does all regular acting, you know what I mean? Anyway, but it's (laughs) really good stuff. Don't miss out on you. (laughs) Regular acting, too. There's some irregular, sure. So, But check out Michael's work as well. You will not be disappointed. But for any reason, if you were disappointed with the content of our show today, please feel free to lodge a complaint with the head of our complaint department, Ramses the fourth. Sure, he (laughs) thinks he's busy with running his pyramid gang and trying to avoid the terror and Miss Lent, but don't forget that he also has a slew of guys in his pyramid gang, like Frank, to carry out his bidding. Plus, if it's going to make him look better, he's going to handle the offending party even sooner. Well, thanks again, Michael.
1: Thanks, Blade. Thank you all so much.
2: All right. Goodbye, everybody, thanks, and thanks for watching. Goodbye! Bye. Bye.
3: Our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, the Red Shirts Widows and Orphans Fund, which supports the Witch Upon a Teen Foundation that helps out sick kids when they need it most. And just imagine, the comfort you'll give redshirt crewman number four. He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and joined Ramses Fourth in keeping the city and the streets safe from the tick and Arthur, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope, because the redshirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and what's left of his right thorax.
2: And speaking of sponsors and show partners, check out this short video from our good friends over at Level Up Lightsabers. information about Level Up Lightsabers and their online training sessions can be found in the episode description below.
0: On behalf of the rest of the hosts of Funny Science Fiction, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on one of our future episodes, please contact us by means of our Facebook group, Funny Science Fiction. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram using the handle at funny sci-fi, or you can go to DraytonAllen.com and click the Contact Me link at the bottom of the page. Thanks again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Copyright 2020 by Drake Allen. Virtual music by Jordan Michaels. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned in this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation of or by Funny Science Fiction or its sponsors. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at draytonallen at